Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. This is the program that shows you how to turn your obstacles into opportunities and your problems into solutions and make your dreams come true. We're in our 22nd year on the air and very proud of that. And today we are talking about the family court and how we can bring justice to children and families and particularly those that um, do not have the means to hire their own attorneys or bring in their own support systems. My guest is Jane Spinak, and the name of her new book is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. Jane M. Spinak is the Edward Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, where she directed clinical programs and family regulation for 40 years. She also served as the attorney in charge of the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York, was the founding chair of the board of the Center for Family Representation, and co-chaired the Task Force on Family Court created by the New York County Lawyers Association. Jane Spinnick has received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families, including being named as a human rights hero by the ABA Human Rights Journal in 2005. Welcome, Jane Spinnick. Thank you, Patricia. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, that's it's amazing all the wonderful work that you've done. I mean, really, truly. So let's talk about this kind of great idea um, that has happened and how this actually led to the creation of juvenile court, which is now known, known as family court. But this started over a century ago. It did. It began in Chicago in 1899. The first juvenile court was started. And today, in some states, it's still called juvenile court. In some states, it's children's court or family court. But they all began with the original court in Chicago. The whole idea behind it, there were two ideas, really. The first was that children should be treated differently than adults when they get into trouble. And that is something we want to hold on to. Uh, Our Supreme Court in recent years has talked about how children are developmentally different and adolescents are developmentally different than adults. And so they need special procedures. And we should definitely include that. But the other part of the basis for the court was to deal with the millions of immigrants who were flooding into the country at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. They were overwhelmingly poor. They had very different um mores and culture and language than the earlier white settlers. They were mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe. And as I said, they were very poor. And there was a lot of concern about both making them into so-called proper Americans, but also figuring out how to deal with all that poverty and the inequities that went with it. I have a question because when you're talking, I keep thinking about what's happening now on the border. Right. And, you know, even though it's many years later, how different is that from what's happening now? Well, it's not really very different at all. Um, You know, the outcry when children were removed from their families Um, at the border a few years ago, um, there were similar kinds of outcries um, at different points in our history, certainly at the time that the court was started. And sometimes children were removed in 
in the same way that children, Native American children, have been removed from their families. So this is something that the country has struggled with for a long time. There are many aspects of what the progressive reformers were trying to do at the beginning of the 20th century that we want to hold on to. Um, creating libraries, settlement houses, parks, mm-hmm. better public schools. These were all part of the progressive agenda, as was the court. The difference is that the idea behind the court was that a benevolent judge, maybe with a probation officer and a social worker, were going to figure out what was wrong with the family and see if they could fix it. Well, courts aren't very good at fixing. They may be very good at at uh, resolving a legal dispute, but but there was a belief that maybe through informal procedures the court would do a better job than in a more adversarial type proceeding. And it was also that some of the reformers thought that a separate court would keep people who were impoverished um, and not used to American ways um, separate. Uh, So that was the basic idea. And now it's about 125 years later. Mm-hmm. And what I've done is taken a look at that institutional history and really asked, has this worked? Have we actually served children and families well in this court? Or do we need to think differently about how to do that? Now, if we think differently, then are we looking at maybe one court for everybody, or are we looking at uh, different offenses, if you will, um, like misbehaving versus criminal activity? I mean, what what are we looking at? Well, the the current family court addresses both private matters like custody or support, as well as those matters that the state brings. So that might be also paternity and support. It is what is most people know as child protection. Some people call it family regulation instead of child protection or child welfare, um, delinquency, and something called status offenses, which most people know nothing about. And they are mm-hmm. when a young person is brought to court because they've misbehaved, but not because they've broken the law. And the status offense means that because they're under the age of 18, their status as a minor allows the court to hear these cases. These are things like truancy, running away from home, maybe not listening to your parents, uh, getting involved in underage drinking. But these are not crimes. If you were an adult, those would not be things that you could be brought to court for. And um, many people, including me, Um, don't think those kinds of misbehaving belong in court. Um, One of my recommendations is to stop that jurisdiction entirely. And that has been recommended before, including by um, one, uh, one commission under the Nixon administration that was very concerned about why are we bringing young people into court for misbehavior? What we need to be doing is providing them with community-based assistance mm-hmm. and activities. Um, or counseling. Or counseling if they need it. Um, many of the young people who, uh, you know, I, I was an adolescent, you were, we probably misbehaved in ways our parents didn't like. And if you have resources, if you're a family with resources, you can certainly try to 
get the supports your child needs or get the tutoring they might Mm -hmm. need that makes them not want to be in school. But often for impoverished families, they don't have those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so having better services and supports in the community would probably mean that almost none of those young people need to be taken into a court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why this is so important for all of us to know about, not just for those people who are impoverished and need the the state assistance or the, the court-appointed assistance, if you will. My guest today is Jane Spinak, and she is a lawyer who has received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families. And her new book is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Family. And she, you know, explores why we often don't do justice um, to children and families in the current system we have. And what can we do about it? And we'll talk about that more after the break. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on VoiceAmerica.com, America's Voice. And we'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now, she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for the Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Get Unchained. Tune in every Wednesday for Unchained TV on the Voice America Variety Channel. Featuring nationally recognized, best-selling author, TV journalist, and the founder of the Unchained TV free streaming network, Jane Velez Mitchell. This program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution. It all starts on your plate. If you want to revolutionize your life, get happier, more energized, then discover the secret. Tune in to Unchained TV, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show Hi, everyone, and we are back. You are listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on VoiceAmerica.com, America's Voice. And we are talking today about the family court. And we are talking to author Jane Spinak, who is a lawyer who has received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families. Her new book is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and to Families. And Jane Spinak is the Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, where she directed clinical programs and family regulation for 40 years. She's also served as the attorney in charge of the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York 
and was the founding chair of the board of the Center for Family Representation and co-chaired the task force on family court created by the New York County Lawyers Association. And she also was named the human rights hero by the ABA Human Rights Journal in 2005. So welcome back, Jane. Thank you. Amazing everything you've done. So my question before we even get into the book more is for those of us who are listening, who may not have been uh, affected by the family court in this way, Mm -hmm. or because we've had the means to deal with a family court differently. Why is this important for all of us to know? Well, I think it's important because often what goes on in a court like family court, which in many states is closed to the public, so there is not a lot of coverage. People don't necessarily know what goes on. And I think it is important for for the general public to understand because we all want to be educated about our justice system, but also because, as you said, the court overwhelmingly addresses um, Mm -hmm. impoverished families, disproportionately families of color. This is less so in the private custody cases, but it is overwhelmingly so in cases like uh, juvenile delinquency or um, child protection and uh, child welfare cases. And so part of the reason why it's so important to understand is that often what what the public hears about is some tragedy. And Mm -hmm. the tragedy is usually awful. Um, A child dies or a young person commits a terrible crime. And the public thinks, well, this is this is uh, normal. This is what always happens. But in fact, many, many of the families who find themselves in court are there because of poverty or they're there because of inequities in their community, um, aspects of their communities that aren't safe or services that are not provided or schools that are not up to snuff. And so Part of the reason why it's important is for all of us to understand that we could provide that support and services in the community and really Mm -hmm. diminish the need Mm -hmm. for so many of these families to be in any kind of court setting or state involvement. I'll I'll use an example that I think is important. During the pandemic, when uh, there was both um, extra cash going out to many families, working families, poor families, even middle class families, and there was a moratorium on evictions, there were actually fewer reports of child abuse and neglect and fewer report and and after the pan the the worst of the pandemic was over many um physicians reported that they saw no increase during that time of more abuse and neglect even though these families were like most of us locked up at home. Mm-hmm. And and as we also know, those checks brought down the poverty rate significantly. Mm-hmm. Oh. So the combination really says to us, supporting families is good for all of us because it allows families to take better care of their children in the ways that most of them want but don't have the the resources to do. It also strengthens the ability of parents to um, 
reach out and provide mutual aid to each other. That was going on all during the pandemic. Communities really came together to support families. Um, You know, I'm just thinking about, uh, even though I live in New York City, I spent quite a bit of time in Maine during the pandemic, and it was remarkable in the community I was in how much effort went into supporting all families because everyone saw this as as an emergency that we all had to work on this together. And I think part of my message is that emergency continues to exist for many families who do not have the resources that they need to raise their families in the way they want to. Yeah, I think there's another point here too. I think what happens is that this economic problem or issue divides us. So a lot of times we want to reach out and we're afraid. Gee, if we reach out to that family, maybe that child will be a bad influence on my child. We already are judging people because of their socioeconomic status on the way they live, or maybe they don't live um, in the same type of community. And so it divides us rather than bringing us together to help each other. I think that's true. And there have been some really important programs at in different jurisdictions in the country that that um, were were started, were really inspired by some reports done by the U.S. Advisory Board on Abuse and Neglect in the 1990s. They recommended uh, programs that got everybody in a community to understand that we all share responsibility for children being able to grow up healthy and strong and educated and ready to be productive adults. And these programs showed that if you engage the entire community and the community understands that their only responsibility isn't to pick up the phone and call the hotline, the abuse and neglect hotline, and say, gee, I'm worried about this family, that that doesn't do what needs to be done, which is to support the family. Because very often, even families that are reported get no supports or services after that report. And Mm -hmm. instead, the advisory board said what we need to do is engage everybody in the community to understand that that um, they have a place in supporting families who are struggling, mm-hmm. and and those those pilot programs really showed how possible that is, mm-hmm. in a very similar way that the mutual aid that went on during the pandemic showed how possible that is. So part of my recommendations is to say, how can we get get back to that? Not thinking that your responsibility is done if you pick up and say, gee, I don't know if this child has enough food, but actually reaching out to people in the community to say, how do we connect this family with a food pantry? Or how do we make sure that this family gets the benefits that yes. they're, yes. Um, that they actually qualify for? And I think too, that that's one, one of the things you're bringing up that we often gloss over is we talk a lot about the negativity of the pandemic but they were positive things. It did bring people together and it's gotten people to talk more about these issues and more about mental health that we kind of hit under the rug as well. So we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jane Spinak more about what we've been seeing in the family court and what are some of the success cases and what are um, what are some of the things that we really need to still work on within the family court system in terms of... Um, child neglect, child abuse. So we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. And my guest today is Jane Spinak. 
Okay. And she is the author of the brand new book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. We'll be right back. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burrows and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. It is time to change the negative narrative of divorce. Families are hungry for a different option. Listen to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. You will discover how to function as one family living in two homes. There are high-functioning, stable, and happy divorce families living in your neighborhood. What's their secret sauce? What did their journey look like? Do they have regrets or recommendations? Let's find out. It's never too late to have a good divorce. The Good Divorce Show, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. On Next at the Mic Radio, Voice America producer and host Bonnie D. Invites you to eavesdrop on her live unscripted conversations with Voice America's longtime new and upcoming hosts. Tune in as she uncovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, how they define success, handle challenges, and more to inspire you to think out of the box and find your own mic. Enjoy Bonnie D's always lively spotlight conversations on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ooh, how those lips can talk. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and we are back we are talking to jane spinnock about her new book the End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. And Jane M. Spinak is the Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School. She directed clinical programs and family regulations for 40 years. She's received many awards. She also served as the attorney in charge of the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York and was the founding chair of the board of the Center for Family Representation and co-chaired the task force on family court created by the New York County Lawyers Association. And she was named Human Rights Hero by the ABA Human Rights Journal in 2005. Welcome back, Jane. Thank you. All right. Let's, let's get a little bit into the heart of the book of, you know, why you really wrote this and what what you're concerned about, and certainly we're talking about before we talked about things that we can do coming together as a community, but what is your major concern? My major concern is really that this court was created to so-called fix problems, but courts don't do a very good job at fixing problems, and that's not the role of most courts. And In studying the court over the course of its 125 years, it's pretty clear that giving a judge so much discretion and minimizing due process rights has not ended up helping most of the children and families who find themselves there. So, my recommendations really look at 
how can we shift resources away from both the court system and the the agencies that feed into the court system to put them back into communities? One of the um, when I started working on this book, I thought I still believed that the family court could be reformed. And unfortunately, as I dug into this history, I realized that we keep making the same mistakes over and over. And I, I want to use one example, which is in child protection. So the last time that there was um, statistics on the child protection system. This is across the country. About 8 million reports were made to an abuse and neglect hotline in this country on approximately 4 million families. And of those, most of those cases were were um, screened out. And even those who were still left in, after investigation, about 500,000 of them ended up in court. So we're, we're going from millions and millions of people having some report on them to approximately 500,000 being in court. And those only to about 20% are the things that we all really worry about, like sexual abuse, physical abuse, or some extreme form of neglect. Everything else, everything else was because about of poverty or some of the inequities that go along with poverty. So they didn't even end up in court. And mm. even some of those did end up in court. So we're spending millions upon millions of dollars to, to investigate, to surveil families without actually giving them supports because we have this giant system set up in that way. So part of my recommendation is to shrink that system to only those cases that actually need a court hearing because we are so concerned about the safety of a child. And what would and, that be, for example, child well, abuse? That would be physical abuse of children that is, that is, you know, not a slap on the tush, but serious physical abuse or sexual abuse or, you know, not getting a child proper medical care or starving a child. These are extreme examples that, of course, we want intervention to keep it to to protect a child. But everything else. So we spend, you know, the whole system in the country in 2019 spent thirty four billion dollars on this mm -hmm. system and ended up spending about 17 billion dollars for out of home care for children whereas if we took that all that money or most of that money and thought about creative ways to support families and children in their communities we would not have this giant system mm. that mostly doesn't protect children and there's one other thing that i think it's important for people to understand because we've drawn so many people in, often we miss those more serious cases. So we're not only not protecting, we, we're not only bringing children into, into this system who don't belong there, we're often missing the children who do belong there because the system is so overwhelmed. So mm -hmm. You know, this is this is a serious um, gap in our ability, um, and it also it also undermines the ability of parents to raise their children with a little support, like we all need. Mm. 
So what are some of the recommendations that you have made um, in terms of getting support for families even before these issues happen, um, counseling or support groups or goods and services? What have been some of your recommendations that have worked? Well, I think that there are ways in which to offer assistance that doesn't come with the fear that, oh, if I ask for help, will I be reported? And that's an important thing also to understand, that so many families are afraid to reach out to their doctor or their clinic, to reach out to the school counselor or even a teacher, because all of these so-called helpers um, have the responsibility to report families. And there has been a lot of work done to interview people who, these professionals who say, I, I don't understand when I'm supposed to report. I don't realize that I can offer something beforehand to really understand. And that's a, a lot because they've been told they will be liable if they don't mm-hmm. do it immediately. But in fact, there are many examples of hospitals, of Head Start programs, of schools who have trained their um, personnel to understand, let's slow down. Let's look and see, can we help this family before we think we have to call in some kind of a report? And that makes a huge difference because then the people who need the assistance can feel like, okay, I can reach out to someone. Mm -hmm. So it's very much about feeling that you can reach out. And sometimes they don't reach out because they're afraid they're going to be rejected or they're going to be judged. Right. So that's really what we're looking at. All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more to Jane Spinak about her book. And again, the name of her book is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings justice to children and families. And we'll talk more about what she really means by abolishing. You know, what what does that what does that look like? Um, and I think that's what we're going to talk about next. And what are some of the concrete steps that we can take to shrink um, the court system as we know it? Okay. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. Okay, and stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus Freedom for Humans with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Bright Horizons College Coach, a team of former admissions and financial aid officers, the show takes a deep dive on subjects such as choosing the best essay topic, negotiating merit aid, and navigating the common app. Listeners will learn what really goes into college acceptance decisions from the experts who used to make them. New episodes drop Thursdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. 
Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. We're talking to Jane M. Spinnack a professor of law emerita at Columbia Law School. She's received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families. And her new book is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. So welcome back, Jane. Thanks. Um, So let's talk about um, specifically how you think we could shrink the court and what we can do specifically to help children. I mean, I think... As you said, you are not saying we should not have family court. You're saying- well, I'm saying we we sometimes will need a court, whether it's a civil court or a criminal court, for the most serious cases. But what I'm saying is we don't need a separate court that is built on the idea that a judge can solve family problems. And that traditionally has been what the family court has been about. So when I say abolition, what I'm really talking about is what are reforms that don't strengthen the current system, but are reforms that get at the heart of what doesn't work. We know from the history of the court that adding money or adding judges or making the court a little more efficient has not changed the court sufficiently to allow it to do the things that it was created for. And that's because, in fact, judges aren't very good at that. And so... I'll I'll give you an example in the delinquency area. So the international standard for when a child should be charged with a crime is 14. Mm. We sometimes bring children as young as seven or eight into court Mm. for misbehaving or allegedly for breaking the law, though how a seven or eight-year-old knows that, I don't know. But that international standard says to us that if if there's something going on with a child at a young age, how do we figure out how to support that child and that child's parents in order that the child not be doing things that we none of us, including their parents, would want them to do? Similarly, the. I talked at the beginning about status offenses, which are when young people misbehave, but they're not actually breaking the law. My call is to eliminate that kind of jurisdiction entirely, because what we know from bringing those young people into court is that they often end up further into the juvenile and criminal system than the same young people who were not brought in. So it's about recognizing supports that children and families need and providing them in the community. In the same way, there are aspects of the um, child protective system that I talked about in the earlier segment that really is disruptive, but doesn't end up with better outcomes for young people. Every year, approximately 20,000 young people age out of foster care. Some 
who's who cannot go back to their families, some who years later go back to their families because they they never really wanted to be separated from their families, and some who are legally have no family. Their parental rights have been um, terminated and they were never adopted. So we age out young people who have no legal family. Now, many of them try to reconnect with their families and some do, but the outcomes for, for young people, and this has been studied a great deal, who had similar situations and those who ended up not in foster care had better outcomes in education, in mental health, in employment than the ones who went through the foster care system. It doesn't mean that no child should ever be separated from their parents because of some extreme issue. But even then, there are much better outcomes when that young person can live with a family member Mm -hmm. or a close friend of the family than with a stranger in foster care. Yeah. And I want to read a few things that are from your book that I think are really um, important. Here are some of your suggestions. Eliminate status offense jurisdiction. Youth need help and support, not punitive reactions to normal adolescent behavior. Shrink the juvenile legal system by raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility to the international standard of 14. Raising the age so that older adolescents are not yet treated as adults in criminal youth parts. Reducing the crimes that are mostly about misbehavior and not a threat to society and providing services and not punishment for those youth. Expanding and providing strict due process regulations and protections for young people. Reimagining child welfare system. Ending the current system of mandated and anonymous reporting. Revising and limiting the child maltreatment laws only to apply to serious harm to children. No, and there's many more here, providing full and available due process rights for parents. So those are some of them. And I think it's very important for your listeners to understand the difference that people who have resources can address so many of these issues that people without resources cannot address, and also that that disproportionately families of color and children of color are brought into this system in large part because they don't have the resources that that others in their communities might have. And so, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners had either had their own difficult adolescence or have had a child with difficulties in adolescence. And if they've had resources, they've been able to address it as a family. But if you don't have those resources, if you don't have strong resources in the community, if you don't have your own financial resources, it is very hard to do. And so what we end up doing for those who don't have the resources is kind of punishing them um, for not having those resources by sending them through a system that doesn't really help most of them. Hmm. I think this is such important work that you're doing, Jane. Thank you. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the, before we close, what are some of the results that you've seen from this work? The positive, what, were, what are the inroads that you've seen? Well, I think the most important thing that I'm seeing today are the voices of young people and of parents and family members who have been involved in these systems, who are beginning to organize and speak out and and share their experiences that have had such bad consequences and to ask the system to really think differently about 
how all families need supports in order to raise their children well. And it's those voices and that activism that I actually think has brought us to a different time than earlier times when people were trying to reform. And it's professionals like me who want who more and more are being led by those impacted families, those impacted youth who say, you know, partner with us for change. Don't just tell us what we need, but work with us toward positive change. And I think that's the biggest difference in my career that I've seen because, because there are there is real work going on around the country to organize and speak out against the harms that these families have experienced. Yeah, I think it's very important. How can people find your book and your work? They can uh, Google my name and the name of the book, um, The End of Family Court. I also... uh, Actually, tomorrow we'll put up a website, which I don't want to give you the wrong name. I've been working with a student on it, um, but I think it will be um, com, And there's lots of information there. All right. Thank you so much for being on the program. It was very insightful and enlightening, and you are so dedicated and passionate about the work. Well, thank you for covering this important subject. Thank you, Jane. All right. Stay on the line for a minute. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Um, You can find me at Patricia at patriciaraskin.com. Um, I help people put together their own podcast. So if you want to get your positive message out and I've interviewed over 5,000 guest experts and I'd love to help you get your message out as well. So again, Patricia, patriciaraskin.com and on Facebook, Patricia at uh, Patricia Raskin, actually Raskin Resources. So find me there and you can also get a copy of my newsletter by writing to me again. So remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.